Amen. You can be seated. I love, I love worshiping together as a family here. <clears throat> All right. I don't know about you, I feel a little weird that my, my youngest son is 26. Whoa. It's all good. It's all good. Last week, last week, if you weren't here last week, we talked about hope. Um, mentioned Vikings last week, wore the Vikings jersey. I couldn't wear it again today because I wore it last week. I don't want to wear it twice in a row. But I, there is a lot of purple here. First service, uh, a guy was here with my favorite jersey ever. It said, it said, please, just once before I die. <laughs> Which is good because we're talking about heaven um, and we're talking about eternity. Last week, um, if you weren't here last week, you can go online and listen to the message. We might have some CDs left in the back. But we talked about hope. We talked about that hope circle, you remember. But I talked about that there was three things that if you want to be healthier mentally... You have to think about these three things. So I didn't have a show of hands last week. I'm going to ask this week. How many of you here today would like to be healthier mentally? You see your hands. Okay. Not all of you. <laughs> That's either, you know, make an appointment and see me this week. <laughs> or you think, I'm here. But here's the thing. For all of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, and, you, and I'm not saying this makes everything go away. I'm saying this is what you need to do to be healthier mentally. You have to think on three things. You have to think on these three things that have to become part of who you are. And, and it can't just be, well, I think about that on Sunday when I come to church. It has to be, I'm always thinking about these things. We talked about the three things. The first one is Jesus. You think about Jesus, and what helps thinking about him is you spend time with him. You spend time with him reading the Bible, studying the Bible. You read with, and talk with him, and I, I left my cup back there, but remember the Jesus coffee repeat. Jesus coffee repeat every day you do that, and the more you think about him, the more you will move towards being healthier. You think about Jesus. The second thing you think about is others. You focus on, this is what the people around me need. He's brought me through these things so that I can help these people around me. What, are there, what can I do to help? How can I serve, etc.? Um, and you remember last week I said there's three things. And when I was growing up, what they would say is, is this spells joy. I have to say it like a kid because I was a little kid when I heard it. Jesus, others, and you. Gee, and that spells joy. And I said, I, that's not right for me. Remember I said that last week. I said, because I don't have to have me on the list because I think about me way too much anyhow. The thing I need on the list is something different. And so I said, we think about Jesus, we think about others, and we think about eternity. Guess what they talked about in the kids thing last week? Jesus, others, and you. <laughs> My grandkids, uh, look at what I learned. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was not saying Jesus, others, and you is wrong. When it comes to people, when it comes to others, that's the order. Jesus first, others next, you last. That's the order. I'm talking about generically, here's the things you need to think about. You need to think about Jesus all the time. You need to think about others all the time, more than yourself. And the third thing is eternity. You say, well, that's kind of a weird thing to think about. All through the Bible, it tells us to do that. We're going to learn that in the next couple weeks. But here's what I think happens. We all, have, we all have things of importance that we think about all the time. Whether we choose to or not, those are the urgent things. 
The things you think about that are urgent are in this box, and I just think it's, it's, it's very appropriate that the urgent box also says donuts. <laughs> That's very good. But we have, and I could list them, but the thing is my things that would be urgent are different than your things that would be urgent. And it's very possible that the things that are urgent for you in this season of your life or today or this week were not before and might not be again. They might change. And so the things that are in here are, are changed. They're, they're different. But they're the things we go to first when we're thinking about. The second, the second box that we have, we have the urgent box. We also have the not urgent box. Here's the problem. Not everything in this box is important. Sometimes the things in the not urgent box are more important. But they're not urgent. And so we spend time here. And we only have a limited amount of time, so we're always spending time on the things that are urgent, and we're focusing on those things, and we're putting the things that are not urgent on the back burner, and sometimes those things are more important. And I know some of you are thinking right now, yeah, he's talking about heaven, because that's what we're talking about. Here's the thing, there's another box. This is where most people have their thoughts about heaven. After I'm dead. I think about heaven after I'm dead. That's what's in here. We don't have time to think about this right now because of all the things that are urgent. I have so many things that I have to focus on. I have so many things on my to-do list. I don't know what your season of life is. It could be doing things with your kids, going to games. Do, you know That can take up way more than 24 hours in a day. Maybe that's not your season of life. Maybe you're taking care of parents or grandparents or maybe, maybe you're still here and they're taking care of you and you have certain things that are very urgent. And this then gets put into the, I really don't have time for that right now. This, is the, this goes in the after I'm dead box. That's when I'm going to worry about that because I don't have to worry about that right now. Here's the problem with that. The Bible says the exact opposite. It says we need to be focusing on that. If you know me at all, you know I love C.S. Lewis. I don't agree with everything he says. One, we went on a, like a vacation of a lifetime last year. My in-laws are here. We, we got to go um, to, uh, to London and to Norway and just, just apps. You know, one of the highlights for me was, it's going to sound morbid, in London, in an ancient church, building, standing right in front of where C.S. Lewis was buried. It's like, oh, this is so cool. And you're not supposed to take pictures in those places. We have a picture. <laughs> and, and I can guarantee it's real because you can see in the picture is my brother-in-law's foot because he took the picture and his foot's in it. So we have proof that we were there. But one of the quotes, uh, there's a couple of C.S. Lewis quotes, and there was one that I was trying to think of, and I thought of it, and as I was reading it, I was going to share it with you, and I realized there's a couple others, so sorry, you get three today. Here's the first one. This is the one that I was thinking of it's from his book, Weight of Glory. Here's what he says. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, that's when we don't focus on heaven, that's what we're doing. We're slinging mud pies in the slum. When we have an eternity that the Bible tells us we should be focusing on that changes how we live today. He said this. This is a little scary for some of you. This is something maybe you want to write down and put on your mirror so that you see it every day. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. I have seen this countless times in people's lives. As they've shared with me, I've spent my whole life focusing on earth and I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get heaven either. The Bible says if you spend this life focusing on heaven, you get both. And there's another quote that helps us understand that. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. When you think of the, the fact that hospitals were started and, and the, uh, the slavery was done away with and all of the things that happened in that period of time were done by people whose thoughts were fixed on heaven and eternity... And he said, those who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And so what we want to do is we want to be able to focus on heaven. And you say, that's hard because I can't imagine what it's like. It's like, um, I struggled with this for the first couple decades of my life. And one of the reasons I struggled with it, um, just focusing on it and thinking about it, is because I, I didn't want to go there. And the reason is because I was, I was raised in a church. We used to say, when, when the doors were unlocked, we were there. Well, my dad was a Sunday school teacher, my mom was an organist, and so they had keys, and even when the doors were locked, we were there. And I was just always at church, and the pastor was, bless his heart, <laughs> Nice guy. Really boring. Like 90-minute sermons. Ten minutes in. And in conclusion, it's like, you liar! You're going to go for another 45 minutes and we all know it. And it was so dry and I never understood anything about it. And then they would say, and then heaven. We float around on clouds and play harps. Okay, not really interested yet. Give me a little bit more than that. It's like one big long church service. It's like, no thanks. And, not, and they close with, and we need to be thinking about heaven. It's like, no, we don't. Because that was not heaven, is not heaven. And there's so many people, maybe many of you listening to this now, you're saying, I don't think about heaven because I don't know what it's like. Can't imagine it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a little time over the next couple weeks talking about heaven. This is not my opinion of heaven. 
This is not little Johnny's opinion who died and went to heaven and came back. I'm not discounting those things. That's not where we get our theology about heaven. We get our theology about heaven in God's word. If what somebody says goes along with it, great. If it doesn't, they're wrong. And the Bible's right. So I want to know what does the Bible say about heaven? The problem is this. There is not one big long passage in the Bible that says here's heaven, you know, A to Z. You read this and you know everything there is to know about heaven. The Bible doesn't do that about heaven. It doesn't do that about any topic. It's a little here, a little here, a little there because it, it's like a, a giant, it's not a puzzle, but it's like giant puzzle pieces that all fit together. And the thing that makes them all fit together is Jesus. But it's not in one place. So what we need to do is we need to bring together some of those pieces, some of those parts, some of those pictures so that we can get an idea. You won't understand it fully until you're there, but we can get glimpses of it. And we can understand enough of it that it will fuel our... Some people say, you can't even imagine what heaven is like. I said, I can, and I got a really good imagination. But I want my imagination fueled by truth so that you're imagining what it's like, not because it's what you made up or saw in a movie. If you want to know goofiness about heaven, uh, on YouTube, look up what Hollywood and films say about heaven. And when you look at what they say about heaven, it's like, yeah, not interested. That's really weird. That's not heaven. We want to find out what the Bible says. So what we got to do is we have to go back, see what the Bible says about it, put some of those pieces together. Here's our problem. The last book was written 2,000 years ago. Things have changed a little. Culture has changed. Um, even, Even language has changed. Like, if you're a child of the 60s and I say, far out, man, you would know exactly what I'm saying. Some of you are like, far out, what, out in the driveway? I, I don't understand what that means. Because things change, you know? 2,000 years, a lot's changed. Here's what we're going to do today, very briefly. We're going to look at some ancient ceremonies and customs that are absolutely crucial if you want to understand heaven. Because heaven has this imagery throughout the whole thing. And we're going to look at something so that you understand that a little bit better. We're going to read something. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in a moment. And you got to know the context. You have to know the culture and the background. You have to know the customs or you won't get as full or correct a picture of what it's talking about. And what it's talking about is heaven. So it's a familiar passage to many. It starts in verse 1 of John 14. And if you didn't know this, um, the chapter and verses in the Bible, except for Psalms, the chapters and the verses were added later. The chapters were added like forever ago. The, the verses are, are more recent. They were added in the 1500s. <laughs> so they're only fi- you know, almost 500 years old. But when they wrote it, they didn't have the chapter and verse. And sometimes it's really good to have that division. And sometimes it really throws things off. This is one of those examples. Because you read verse 1 of chapter 14, and it says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, don't raise your hands. We'll have a a mind connection here. You don't have to raise your hands on this. How many of you in the last week or month, your heart has been troubled over something? If your answer to that is yes, 
this is for you. Because Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. He sa- and then he's going to tell us why. You believe in God? He says, you believe also in me. And then verse 2, he starts into what we're going to look at today. My father's house has many rooms. Jesus' father is God. Any, uh, any guesses what his house is? Heaven! That's what he's talking about here. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Where is he going? Heaven. We need to understand not just the immediate context, which I'll tell you about in a second, we need to understand the culture and the customs to to get a picture of what he's saying here. But even the immediate context is important to understand what Jesus is saying here. Why did he just say this? Why why did he just say, don't let your hearts be troubled? It's because in the previous chapter, and immediately before Jesus says this, the disciples are completely bewildered and discouraged. Because Jesus had just gotten telling them things like he was going away. They've been walking with him for three and a half years. He's where they're putting all their hopes and he's saying, I'm going away. Not only that, he's letting them know he would die. So now they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're just like having Passover meal here. What what is this talk about going away and about dying? And then he says, one of the 12, this group of 12 that's been traveling these years together, one of you is a traitor and is going to betray me. He also said, Peter, you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows. He told them Satan was at work against all of them. He told them, all of them in a very short time would fall away. That's what he just got done telling him. That's the context of the words, don't let your hearts be troubled. They had so much more to be troubled about than we think. And the collective weight of all these revelations of Jesus must have greatly depressed them. That's why he said this. That's the immediate context. There are also some customs and some background stuff that you need to know in order to really get the correct picture of heaven. So most of you here have a small, slight understanding of like what marriage is, okay? We understand a little bit of the process, a little bit of the ceremony of it. We get a little bit of that. But we're in, in, in 2019, in first century Israel, actually from the time of the Passover, the first Passover, when, when, they, when they left Egypt. From that time until Jesus' time here in first century Egypt, first century Egypt, first century Jerusalem, um, they did things differently than we do. They had a very scheduled kind of, this is very important to us, how we do this. This Jewish wedding ceremony thing is a big deal. It actually helps us not just understand heaven, but it helps us understand some other things in Scripture as well. So just real quick, here's, here's what theirs was kind of in a nutshell. It starts with the father selects a bride for the groom. And I know right now that half of the people in here are like, oh, that's, that's stupid. Why would they do that? And the other half are, of us fathers are thinking, no, that's a good thing. Can we still do that? 
I know some people would just say, yeah, that would have been a good idea because I have a broken chooser. <laughs> it hasn't worked real well for me. And it would have been nice to have somebody pick. Regardless of what you think about that, that was what they did. The father selected the bride for the groom. And so the bridegroom then would travel from the father's house to the home of the prospective bride. There's a number of times that happened in Scripture, and if we don't understand their ceremony, we don't even know what was going on there. Here's what happened. He picked this. The bridegroom is now going from the father's house to the home of the bride, and what he would do is sit down with the dad, her dad, you know, and, and be, don't, don't let me lose you here. He would negotiate the marriage contract price. Now, before you get all upset, ladies, this is not how much the bride costs. This is how much she's worth. Huge difference. And I won't get into it right now. It was a lot. It was a huge thing because the value was so great. So he would sit down with her dad and he would work out this, this marriage contract. It was called a ketubah is what they, they called it. And after they finished writing this, this written marriage ketubah, the groom would then make his promises you know, to the bride in front of the dad to return for her after he'd gone to his father's estate and um, completed building a place for the two of them to live. So that was what was going to happen. And so the bridegroom, after he signed his name to this contract, to this ketubah, he and the bride would sit down at a table. Now, they're kind of alone at this point, but I have a feeling there's a whole bunch of people peeking in the windows and around the corners and stuff. They're sitting at the table, and the groom would come in and sit down, and he would set down two cups of wine. And he would take the first cup and drink it. Very ceremonial. She knew exactly what he was doing. This was an act representing his love for her. He would sit down, he would drink that cup, and the second cup that was not empty, would sit there on the table while the bridegroom prayed. I can tell you, he prayed. <laughs> because if she didn't drink it, there was no deal. So he'd drink his cup. Before he started praying, he'd say this. These were the words that they said for 1,500 years. This cup represents the blood covenant. Kind of a weird thing to say at a proposal, I know. For them, it was not weird. A blood covenant was a covenant that could not be broken. And he's saying, this represents this relationship we're going to have, this covenant I'm making with you, and nothing will break it. It was a huge deal. So for generations, they would sit the cup, they'd drink one, point to the other one, and say, this cup represents the blood covenant. At that point, the prospective bride had a choice. She could drink from that second cup or let it set. By drinking from the cup, she signified her acceptance of the bridegroom. By letting it sit on the table, she was signifying her... Re she didn't do anything. But if she didn't take it, even though she did nothing, she was showing that she's rejecting the bridegroom and the covenant, and this contract. And all she had to do was show that she rejected that was nothing. She didn't have to say, no, you're stupid, I don't like you, I reject you. She didn't have to do anything, just not drink from it. 
So that's why the bridegroom is praying at this point, please, please, please drink from it. Once the bride drank from the cup, the, you could hear the mother-in-law in the back behind the curtain screaming, <laughs> you know, everybody's happy. They're not supposed to be looking, but they are. The bride would drink from the cup. At that point, the, ser- the, the wedding um, contract, this ketubah, it was sealed forever. And the young couple were then known to be betrothed. So they weren't married. They were, like we would say, engaged to be married, but it's like engaged on steroids because it's a legal binding contract. This is good forever. And there's examples in the Bible about people that weren't married yet. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet, but they were betrothed to be married, and they were as good as married. And to break that, you had to get divorced. A couple I'm sure you're familiar with, Joseph and Mary. Remember, he was, they, were, they were espoused. They were betrothed. They were engaged to be married. It was as good as married in the eyes of the law, and to break that needed a divorce. And so once she accepted that, it was sealed, and they were known to be betrothed. Then the bridegroom would do something really weird. They're all excited. Yeah, we're getting married. It's good. He'd leave. <laughs> and he would go back to his father's place his father's house, his father's estate, and he would begin preparing a place for them to live. Only the father could decide when everything was done correctly and the bridegroom could go get his bride. So here's what I picture. I picture bridegrooms that are pretty excited about this. I'm getting married. (laughs) He's going and he starts, he works on the room and he gets it all ready and he shows his dad. It's like, yeah, look, dad says, no, not yet. Oh, dang. Walks back. It starts working on it again. This was not like a two-minute thing. This could be nine months. It could be a year. It could be two years. The only person who knew when it was ready was the father. And what would happen is the bridegroom would just continue to work on it until the father finally said, you can go get her. So while that's happening, meanwhile, back at the ranch where the bride is, the bridegroom, she said, yes, she's all excited, and he leaves. And he's gone for a month, and six months, and nine months, and a year, and a year and a half. And she's thinking, this sucker's slow, man. Why is he not coming back? And you could see where it would be easy to kind of lose heart a little bit and wonder, is he really coming back? She knew he was coming back. You know why? They had the agreement that was sealed. It, it, was, it was solid, and she knew that. So you know what she did? She would go while he was back getting everything ready. The bride would prepare herself. He's preparing the place. She's preparing herself. So that whole time of waiting that she didn't know how long it was was preparation for her life with her bridegroom. Why? Because all her life up to that point, she'd look towards and forward to being married. I can't wait to be married. It's going to be so great. Now I'm betrothed to him. He's going to come back for me. And we don't know how long it's going to take during this time. Do you think she would not think about him? She would think about him every day as she prepared herself because this interim time is nothing compared to what it's going to be like when he comes back and gets her and are able to live together. So she's spending this time preparing herself while she's waiting, excited about this life with the bridegroom that's coming. So when the father finally says, yes, 
He comes back with his wedding party to get her, and he always comes at a time when she doesn't know when he's coming, so he can sneak up on her. It's going to be really fun, and they come up, and they get close, and somebody blows the big horn, the shofar horn, you know, like the Vikings thing, you know, and everybody gets excited, and it's usually at night, so they can surprise her, and he comes running in and, and grabs her, picks her up, and steals her away. What do you think he would think if he came back, and they said, oh, she's not here right now, she's busy. He's like, I've been working on this place for a year and a half, man. You're supposed to be ready. That's, she was ready. I guarantee it. She was excited about what was going to happen. And he would come and steal her away, and he'd carry her back to the father's house. And this is where it gets a little awkward, where everybody was waiting. Everybody that's going to be in the wedding is waiting there. And when they get to the father's house, the two of them, with the whole wedding people watching, go into the bridal chamber to, um, to, to consummate the new marriage. How weird would that be as you walk in and close the door and you know that there's 300 people out there, you know? And you know that Aunt Ruthie is at the door, you know, <laughs> listening. You know that. They stayed in the chamber for seven days as they consummated the marriage before coming out to be unveiled. And they would come out and the the bridegroom would announce his bride. Now, again, a little awkward. All the little kids were like, "Ah, (laughs) you know what you were doing in there? And it it wasn't weird for them because they had done it for 1,500 years. They come out, he announces it, and then the party begins. The, the, the huge marriage supper starts, and it's all dependent on how much money the father had as to how nice things were. So there's way too much to get into today, but I just want to kind of give you a flyover and touch on a couple things. That was the, the context. That's what they understood back then. When he says, my father's house has many rooms, it was fascinating to me when I, was, when I was still dating Julie. She told me a story about the first time she heard this verse, and it just it melted my heart because it's, it's what I thought. It, it, it's what got me going on this verse. When he said, in my father's house are many rooms, you know what that means? He wants a lot of people in heaven. It's not exclusive. It's not some little club that only people who got cleaned up correctly can go to. He has room for everybody. Not everybody's going to go because not everybody's going to pick up the cup and accept what he's offering. See, God does not send anyone to hell, but he will respect their decision to go there. And by not accepting the contract, by not accepting the bridegroom, Jesus, you make that choice. But God says, I want everybody here. I got room for all of you. In my Father's house are many rooms. But you know, when he goes away to prepare that place, that involves separation. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. And there's a lot of people thinking, yeah, it's taken a long time. Here's how I look at it. Somebody reminded me, first service, Keith Green, singer who tragically died a number of years ago, Christian singer, um, used to say, God created the earth, the universe, in seven days. 
He spent the last 2,000 years working on heaven. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? But in the meantime, it's been 2,000 years. So he left someone to help us in this time. He left the Holy Spirit. And for us, we use the Holy Spirit as our source of strength and our power. That's God with us as we, and get this, as we prepare for that eternity. Just like the, 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 the bride prepared for the bridegroom coming, that's what we do. We should be thinking every day. It could be today. I can't wait. It could be today. I'm going to make sure that I'm prepared because life is preparation for eternity. The bride gets stolen away. They spend seven days in a bridal chamber. There's going to be a time when our bridegroom comes back. If we don't die first, he comes back and steals us away. And it won't be seven days. It'll be seven years in the bridal chamber before the scripture says he walks out and presents his bride spotless to the world. And then the party begins. You think of a big wedding party. You know, there could be 300 people there. How about a wedding party with a billion people? How incredible is that going to be? The celebration is related to the wealth of the father of the groom. That's God. He owns everything. Can you imagine what kind of a party that's going to be? So that was their understanding. We need to understand what they understood when we read these bits and pieces about heaven. Just before what we read in John 14, I said Jesus and the 12 had the, what would be their last Passover together. They celebrate that Passover meal together. And that's where Jesus institutes the practice of communion, which you will see is an incredible picture, not just of the exodus and what happened when they were um, let out of Egypt, but it's Jesus is all through that. You understand that from the first um, word in the Bible to the last word in the Bible, from in to all, Jesus is there on every page, in every book, on every chapter. The whole thing is about Jesus. And Jesus institutes his practice of communion. And, and Matthew, who was there, describes it like this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And then verse 28 this is my blood of the covenant. And you don't read this here, but you know what happened just at that second when he said that? A bunch of burly fishermen looked at each other and said, did he just propose to us? You know what the answer is? Yes, he did. Because they would form the church. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And that's what Jesus was doing. He said, this represents my blood. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The whole purpose of communion is to help us to remember and to look forward to look back and to look ahead. We look back toward what Jesus did on the cross. He willingly gave his life, 
gave his body, spilled his blood, not because he deserved it, but because we did. Because the wages of sin is death, he paid that price for us. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior, if if you've received him as Savior, then that's what communion does for you. It reminds you of what he did so that you could have a home in heaven, so that you could have that relationship with him now. It also helps us to look ahead because Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this again with you until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. He's reminding us that there's coming a day when we'll sit with him at the wedding feast and we'll do this again and we'll do it live and in person. So we're actually going to celebrate communion today because it will help us focusing on heaven. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. Communion, when we share the bread and when we share the cup, that's for believers only. It does not save you. Don't take it thinking it will save you. It can't even make you not hungry anymore. It's like this little thing, cracker, and a little half ounce of, of grape juice. It's not like, oh, boy, I'm stuffed. It does nothing for you physically. You know what it does? Spiritually, it helps us remember what Jesus did. It helps us remember that he did that. He paid that price for us, and he's coming again. And I get to celebrate with him in person someday. So we believe at Journey in Our Church is for believers only, but we believe it's for all believers. So it's not just for like if you're a member of Journey North Church or if this is your home church. If you're here today and you claim Jesus as Savior, you've trusted in Him for your salvation, we would welcome you to share with us. If for any reason you want to let it pass by, nobody's going to say, hey, why didn't you do that? Just pass it and don't, take it, don't worry about it. That's all that we have to do. So I'm going to have... Um, Josh is coming up. I'm going to have you guys come on up and start passing that. They're going to pass the bread first, and I want you to hold it until we've all received it. I want to read for you while they're doing that from 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is telling us that he's passing on to us, verse 23, what he received from Jesus himself. It says, On the night he was betrayed. And that's the thing that always gets me the most. On the night that Jesus knew that Judas, a friend, was going to betray him with a kiss. That he was going to be arrested in the garden and go through those mock trials all night and be whipped and beaten and crucified the next day. He knew what was coming on that very night. He took bread. He gave thanks to God for it. He broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, um, can, you, can you bring that up here? I, just, I forgot to grab it. I'm going to share it with Josh. For 2,000 years, believers have been taking something symbolic of Jesus' body and, and remembering that it was that price that allowed them to be free. Throughout the centuries, there have been times when doing this together was done at great cost. There are places in this world right now, today, where sharing this together is at great cost. Sometimes your family or your life. So I am eternally grateful that we are still in a country that we have the freedom to do this. 
And so I'm going to pray and give thanks. And when I'm done, I'll tell you and we can all share together. Father, as believers have for 2,000 years, we give thanks to you. Thank you for not just this. Thank you for everything you provide for us, but the fact that you were willing to come and die for us on the cross. When it was us who needed to, to pay for that, you paid it for us. For those who have accepted that and trusted and received Jesus, Father, we thank you and will thank you through all eternity for that. We thank you for this symbol that represents your body that you were willing to give for us. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As believers have done for 2,000 years, let's share together and remember Jesus. He tells us every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're announcing Jesus' death. So you just preached a sermon. That's the word that's used there. We proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. We want to remember that it seems like a long time since the bridegroom left. He's coming back for us. We have to live that way. Someday we get to do this with Jesus in heaven. I personally can't wait. Because it's all because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Because of his death and resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead and proved everything he said was true. You're going to hear me say this a number of times in the next few weeks. The climax of history will be the creation of new heavens and a new earth, a resurrected universe inhabited by resurrected people living with the resurrected Jesus. We started with John 14, 1 through 4. Here's the next two verses. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, so I'll come back and get you. And Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And what Jesus answered is what you need to understand with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you know him, you should be thinking about him every day because he's coming back. And we want to prepare. He may come back in your lifetime. He may come back this afternoon. He may not come back for 100 years. It doesn't matter. You're going to stand before him one way or another. You want to be ready. The only way to be ready is Jesus. I'm going to pray in just a moment. When I pray... And during the closing song, if you would like somebody to pray with you, just make your way to the back corner. Somebody will be back there. They'll be able to pray with you. Um, maybe, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you know church and religion, but you don't have a relationship with this one that's um, so vivid and so real and Scripture and coming back for us. And you say, I'd like to know him like that. Make sure you make your way back there to have somebody pray with you. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus to die for us. Thank you for the freedom that we have still to be able to, in public, celebrate the fact that you willingly gave your life for us by remembering the way you ask us to remember with the, the bread and the cup. And know, Father, that we are so looking forward to the day when we get to do this in person.
But until that day, I pray that we would prepare for eternity, that we would think on eternity, that we would realize that we're in this transition period. This is not the most important thing. It's preparing for that life with you. But we also know, Father, that this is the only time we get to make those decisions. So I pray that we would share with everybody we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. And I am so glad that God's love is relentless. I'm so glad that... Flies. That he was fighting for the furthest heart. And you think, I'm too far. No, you are not too far gone. He is... He is if, if you don't know him yet, I'm warning you, he is after you, man. Because he has many rooms in his house. And he wants you to be there. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Instead of taking the after I'm dead box and having your thoughts of heaven in that box. I want you to take your thoughts of heaven and put it in the urgent box. We are not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed a minute, a year, a month, a decade. We're not guaranteed anything. Here's what we're guaranteed. Jesus is coming back. And I want to be prepared And I want you prepared, and we're going to take as many with us as we can. So we need to place our thoughts of heaven in our, I make sure I had the right one, in our donut, urgent box, (laughs) and live that way. And like C.S. Lewis said, you think you live your life focused on heaven, and you get earth thrown in more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for, as we said, being able to celebrate that together as a family today. And Father, for anybody not in that family, for anybody who's never come to Jesus and and believed and received him as Savior, I pray that today would be their day and in simple faith they would turn to you knowing that it not only changes this life, it changes all of eternity. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.